Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in. Come on in. We've got a chill in the air already. Step inside of the cabin and get yourself warmed up. We've got some far colder months ahead of us. I would like to mention one more film that I saw recently. But before we get on to our stories, I'd like to give those of you that put pen to paper the reminder that we'll be opening our submissions up again next month for a short window. I'd recommend you keep an eye on our Facebook page for the announcement. We'll change our submission page on the site for the week to market as well. The movie that I'll mention this week is an incredibly international film. It is this year's foreign language Oscar entry for the United Kingdoms, despite being filmed in Jordan and set in Tehran during the Iran-Iraq War in 1988. And all the dialogue is in Farsi. Under the Shadow is a film about a woman living with her daughter in Tehran, constantly under the fear of being bombed, and wouldn't you know it, a malevolent spirit takes up residence in her home and begins tormenting her and her daughter, all the while, also, being oppressed for the sin of being born a woman. There are complex themes that are presented simply, which I appreciated. If you catch the movie, just watch for that crack in the ceiling. Once the promise that crack was delivered on... Well, it was the freakiest part of the movie for me. Let's hear some short fiction, Children of the Night. Our first story comes from Chris Glover. Chris Glover is a graduate of the University of Lancaster, where he studied English literature with creative writing. His poems have been published by presses including Leaf Press and Agenda Poetry, and in 2012 he was given a top-right place at the Swanwick Summer School. Several of his short stories have been published by J.A.M.S. Press, The Don Treader, and most recently, Infernal Inc. 
His first novel, The Tales of the Glass, will be published by Netherworld Books later this year, and he can be contacted at smokingthevoid.wordpress.com. Link will be in the show notes. Let's give a listen to Chris Glover's The Day the Fear Died. There are few places left in my heart that I might show you, save for this castle, and there are few feelings left in my soul that are new, except this. There is only so much that isn't old. He tasted the blood, grimaced, and held it up to the light. There was no fresh pain, no pure screams, and he pondered on how stale the glass was. White mold melted into clots, floating on the surface above the bile at the bottom. A single spider's leg floated somewhere in the middle. Disgusted, he shattered the glass in the corner. How many times would a poet fall in love before he gave it up? How long would scientists spend realizing space always stretched just a little further? There is only ever nothing or something. The surgeon sat at his desk and imagined his castle, towers of black stone that snatched the clouds, windows too big to know just where to look, a moat dark with blood that gave onto the trees. Just like the others, just like every other one, if there was only nothing or something, tonight he was holding tight to the nothing. The surgeon spat and folded his arms. The something was always just out of reach. The moment you started to smile, you wondered what it might be like to laugh. On his desk lay the corpses of three birds, tiny, gray, and disease-ridden. Their empty eyes stared at one another, their feathers and claws locked in contorted knots. He thought he remembered why they were there, but in the same way people think they might be in love. They lay in a pile with their legs draped over papers and sketches, diagrams drawn when he was still half lost in a nightmare. He lifted one and felt the empty weight in his hand, saw the sharp tip of the beak dipped in blood. His mundane castle needed a beautiful event, one that made the battle-weary people raise their heads, that filled them with a terror that told them again they were alive. As the idea took hold, he smiled. It was the only light in the castle. A short while later, the surgeon lay in his bed, naked to the waist. White hair covered his chest, a burn like a brand stained his stomach. He cast his eye around the room, looking at nothing and taking in everything. Bare stone pretty with cobwebs, a tiny carpet that covered only the middle of the floor. Birds grieved outside the window. His bed was buried beneath the eave, affording him a view of an empty room that seemed to stretch on forever. Beside him, a sodden knife stained the mound of feathers. After carefully teasing out the first few, he had simply ripped the birds apart. He wanted to fly, but the best you could do was jump a little higher each time. He felt frightened, and knew that was good. Nothing was ever achieved without fear. He picked up his knife, letting his skin taste the blade. He needed to act fast, before his thoughts caught up, have his war, before the men backed out. The surgeon began to cut off his fingers. 
He held his hand over the sheet, and by degrees it was red. The pain worked up his arm and racked vomit from his throat as he sawed with slow deliberation. Tears sprang and blood vessels popped in his cheeks. Here and again he chewed on a scream that sent puke dribbling from between his clenched lips. Moving from one to the next, he paused only to place the finger beside the feathers. Nerves split and agony raced along. He tried to scream again, wanting to, but this time it was strained, tight. Blood seeped through the bedding, and the world inside the room rolled and shivered. When it was over, he lay back, cradling his arm. The wind howled through the empty corridors, lingering on the deserted staircases. The surgeon waited, not knowing what for, only battling to reclaim a consciousness that seemed it never had been his. What we take for granted is usually what we just take. As he lifted the first feather, his good hand trembled. He wondered if he couldn't hear voices, thoughts beneath the bed, ideas outside the door. He smiled. His teeth were red. The little sewing kit lay beside the bed, and he carefully selected a needle and thread. Every movement sent pain coursing through him. The surgeon began to sew the feathers to his hand. Delicately, he fed the needle through the tip, working it then into the bloodied stumps. There was no new pain. There never is. His skin was blue, blood still dribbling. Here and again his eyes rolled white as he pushed through darkness thicker with each blink. Sometimes all that drives us is a desire to see the end. Finally he lay back and looked. Feathers jutted from his palm at odd angles. His wrist was a mess of blood, puke, and bone. He twitched the fingers that were no longer there, making the feathers jump. Their pearly gray was stained almost black, and the flesh up to his elbow was green. Tears of anger shimmered in his eyes. A mist descended over his face. What was frightening about it? What was there for people to run from? The feathers cut into the stumps, and when he wriggled them, pain lit his arm. He looked at the pile of severed fingers and, in disgust, threw them from the bed. Around him, the castle remained the same. A pain he knew began to rise, slowly growing in his arms and in his thoughts. He rolled the feathers again, ignoring the agony that burnt his senses. Nobody would run. Nobody. Never. The tears began to roll down his face. Nothing ever worked the way you wanted it to. The surgeon lay down and tried to sleep. That was Chris Glover's The Day the Fear Died, as read by Brian Alexander. Brian is a futurist, writer, speaker, and consultant in the field of higher education and technology. 
He used to teach classes in gothic horror and continues to blog and publish research along those morbid lines. He and his family live on top of Vermont's Green Mountains, half off the grid. Links to a couple of his sites are in the show notes. Thank you, Brian. Our second story of the night comes to us from Andy Remick. Andy Remick is the author of quite a few fantasy and sci-fi novels currently, Spiral, Quake, Warhead, War Machine, Bio-Hell, Hardcore, Sim, Serial Killers Incorporated, Kell's Legend, Soul Stealers, Vampire Warlords, Clone World, Theme Planet, Toxicity, and the anthology The Clockwork Vampire Chronicles. His latest works are The Iron Wolves and The White Towers, along with The Dragon Engine and Twilight of the Dragons, all published by Angry Robot Books. He's also got three novellas out, published by Tor U.S., A Song for No Man's Land, Return of Souls, and The Iron Beast. Remick is a hard-talking, hard-fighting, fluffy bunny rabbit of a man who enjoys mountain biking, filmmaking, mountain climbing, kickboxing, and red-hot chili peppers. He has an unhealthy love of chainsaws, and some people like his books. Andy can be contacted by emailing andyremick at outlook.com, and the link to his webpage will be in the show notes. And now Andy Remick's Pandemonium. 
We wouldn't go to hell, so hell came to us. It began as a gentle tremor on a global scale, which rose gradually through a spectrum of violence until the earth churned, sand and soil and rock screaming and bubbling and rising and falling, the earth a fluid ocean, each continent an insanity of instability. New York City fell like a stack of teetering dominoes. Paris was flooded in the blink of an eye, and with a final screech of twisting, sparking iron, the Eiffel Tower fell with majesty and ploughed under churning soil. In London, an inferno raged. The ground bubbled, fists of rock and iron punched upward, destroying streets and crumpling buildings and pulping people. The seas boiled over. In one terrible, catastrophic day, the world as we knew it was changed forever. I remember the first chilling night sat on a hilltop of rock beside a smashed monument of old stone blocks looking out and down over Manchester. Or what had become of Manchester? For this was no longer a city of houses and buildings and shops of cars and people and double-decker buses. The earth had churned and bubbled and spewed, smashed and swallowed and obliterated. Now the world before me was a sweep of scarred rubble with ten thousand fires burning, an atrocity, columns of smoke rising, like dark fingers accusing heaven. Twinkling sunlight dropped behind an iron horizon as a bitter wind howled. Winter was only weeks away. Across the landscape array before me, very little moved. Tens of thousands had died. I didn't realise the scale of the disaster, the occurrence, or whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah, hell, right. I just remember huddling close to a few people in the lee of the fallen stones from the crushed monument, still wearing my corduroy blazer, now tattered and torn, stained with mud, my red tie the only splash of colour in a bleak new world. It was a hard, cold night up on the moors. I awoke slowly, confused and feeling like my entire body was a block of ice. My fingers and toes were rigid, filled with needles. I wondered if it had all been a dream, a terrible nightmare, a flight into horrific fantasy. After all, it isn't every day the world descends into chaos and hell. I was cuddled up to somebody for warmth, and realised with brightness that she was a young woman from my usual bus stop, wearing a smart black business suit. She was pretty, with long blonde hair and spiderweb patterned stockings that fired my imagination even now, despite the turmoil. And here I was, cuddling her. I snuggled in close, trying to leech warmth, rather from any perverted thoughts at that point, although I knew they would come later. And as I shifted my weight, I felt something move behind me. I turned and looked down at the old woman who had, in turn, been cuddling up to me. She was dead. It was obvious she was dead because she was blue and stiff and her rigid tongue poked from her lips like a fat, burnt sausage. Ew, I said, twitching and waking the pretty blonde. She scrambled away from me with a frown of disgust, her eyes and snarling lips accusing me of bad things. Then she relaxed back a little, panting, and looked around, confused. I too looked around and remembered that the world had gone to rat shit. I'm Tom, I said, and held out my hand. The blonde stared at it as if it was a rearing rattlesnake. Why were you holding me? Are you a pervert? My dad has a shotgun, you know, she said. I was just keeping warm, I pleaded, holding my hands wide, palms outward. Don't you remember yesterday? The apocalypse? The end of the fucking world? The woman's shoulders slumped, crestfallen. Oh yes, shit. Then her eyes flared wide. I have to get home. I have to get home now. She surged to her feet, then slipped for one heel was broken. She bent, removing her shoes, and only then did I pick out the finer details, the twigs in her hair, the tears in her stockings, the bloodstains on her suit cuffs, broken nails and smeared mascara. Not a good look. 
She looked up, saw the dead old woman, her mouth open in shock. What did you do to her? she gasped. Hey, wait, I didn't do anything. The blonde woman screamed, hands on her cheeks, a long, shrill, bitter wailing, a piercing thing. The sort of scream to break glass, the sort of scream to bring trouble. You okay, love? The voice was deep, a bass rumbling, as some huge guy moved around a tumble of scattered stones toward us. He was followed by another man, small and slim, face like a ferret, and wearing broken glasses hastily repaired with wire. He was trying to do something to that old woman, the dead one, said the blonde, poking her finger, shaking dramatically. The big guy turned harsh, hard eyes on me, and I held up my hands. Wait a minute. I woke up next to her and she was dead, so unless you think I'm into corpses or indulging in a touch of necrophilia... I stopped. Everybody was staring at me. It's hardly the time for jokes, said the ferret guy in a whining voice. I just like my cadavers younger, I snorted, watching the big guy console the young woman. She buried her head against his chest and wept. He patted her and made soothing, shushing noises. I confess, I was envious. Why hadn't she turned to me like that? Why wasn't she whispering to me like that? Why did Mike Tyson have to come along, bicep his way forward, and steal the alpha male roll from right under my nose? The bastard. What are we going to do? said Ferret Boy. About what? I snapped, dragging my gaze from the twosome and baring my teeth. Er, uh, that, he said and swept his arm across the shattered horizon. Dawn was tentatively creeping across the sky with fingers of blue. The world was a chaos. Fire still burned amongst mountains of rubble. It made me feel sick to my stomach. What can we do, I said. I mean, and here my laughter touched a razor edge of hysteria. It looks like we were hit by a nuke. There were no bombs, said the guy, and strode over, reaching out his right hand. I shook it automatically. I'm Harry. This, he gestured a ferret muppet, is Carlson, and the girl you upset is Sally. I didn't upset her, I said through gritted teeth. Whatever, said Harry. The fact is, we need a plan. To do what? I snorted. Repair hell. To survive, he said, and smiled, showing perfectly white teeth. To find somebody in charge. Somebody who knows what the crap is going on here. Something's happened to the world, Tom, and I want to know what. Hey, you think we should cross the wasteland, Harry? said Carlson, sidling closer to his big friend. They looked like some subversive comedy duo stood there together. Huge and tiny, cool and idiot, geezer and hobo. I was sure I could come up with a superb name for their partnership if given a few hours. Yeah, let's go look for survivors. Wait, I hissed, dropping my voice to a whisper. Do you think she's fit enough to go wandering around a shithole wasteland that could be filled with, well, looters and people with guns and other shitbags? It's either that or stay up here and die from the cold, said Harry, with annoying logic fixing me with his hard stare. Do you think you'll find food or blankets or shelter up here? Well, no, but... Hmm? What if it happens again? Harry fixed me with a steely glare. The world's already fucked, mate. It can hardly get any worse. We followed Harry, our self-appointed leader, down the rocky slope toward black, rich earth and amber clay, all churned with bricks and stones. Halfway down the hillside there was a BMW with its arse poking out of the soil. One wheel spun forlornly, powered by a harsh wind, which cut through my thin blazer and made me wish for once I was back in the classroom teaching little feral bastards. I suppose I could kiss the salary goodbye now, but somehow, despite the madness, the disorder, despite the pandemonium, well, I knew the fucking student loan company would still find me. We reached flat land, and every direction there were soil and mud and rocks and broken sections of buildings like teetering, towering teeth in some knock-down giant's mouth. It was like nuclear devastation. 
Only this had come from within, from our goddess, from our raped and polluted earth mother. And shit, who could blame her, right? We stood, Sally stocking feet pale and small in the mud, the four of us staring at the nightmare of destruction. I'd never seen anything like it, not on TV, nor in Hollywood's slickest, sickest movies. It was a vision that pulled out my eyeballs and rammed a stick into the sockets, stirring my interior brain to mush. I panted, staring. Hell had indeed come to earth. I looked at Sally. She was beautiful, and her eyes were closed, her face serene. And then she spoke, and her voice was the voice of an angel. I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent. Excuse me, I said. Her eyes flickered open. She stared at me as if I were some particularly nasty dirt scraped from her boot. And as I looked into her eyes, I knew, knew she was one of those self-important assholes, a superior ego, and bottomless well of condescension and patronising comments for those she considered inferior to herself and her girlfriends. That is, me and others of my poisonous toad ilk. Daddy's little girl, pretty little blonde girl. You're fit, but you know it. Humanity destroyed by eighteen years of being spoilt. Bah. It's from Milton, Paradise Lost. Have you no education? Er, uh, I'm a teacher, I said. Exactly, she said and smirked, and I knew that our romance was dead. I watched her watching Harry. Oh, so, it was like that, was it? Hell had come to earth, and in this new world order I would be at the bottom of the fucking pile, as usual, shut upon from a very great height by those with the charm, the alarm, the money. Shit. Those the money and power and glory always got what they wanted, just like it's always been. I ambled forward, hands in my pockets, feeling as hideous and miserable as any man who'd just had hell visit his front room. I watched Harry and Carlson laughing, Sally watching Harry, and I couldn't understand what they were laughing about. Bright lights flickered at the edges of my vision. I turned my gaze back to the destruction. Here, now, up close, not sat on a hill talking and moaning, but here in the shit, I could see exactly what had happened. The outcome. Corpses lay bent and broken everywhere. I had never realised there were so many people in Manchester. Now I realised there were so many dead people. There a man bent backwards, the back of his skull touching the heels of his boots. His face was fractured into a grimace, brain spilling out of his skull. And there, a beautiful woman, with both legs broken outwards, bone poking through cold, torn flesh, her Hello Kitty pink knickers on display in a most undignified way. Not that I suppose she really cared, because she was snapped open like a broken doll. And over there an old man, still attached to his motability scooter, only now he was part of his motability scooter. The metal handlebars merged with his caved-in chest, some kind of metal bell embedded in one eye socket like a grotesque and twisted monocle. I stared and panted and thanked the Lord that I'd been spared, but then I realised it was the Lord who had allowed this to happen. No more praise was forthcoming. What do we do now, I ask, aware my voice was whining but not caring, aware my panting was pathetic but truly not giving a damn. We must head out across this wildness, said Harry, and I saw it. Caught it. Shit. Religious fervour. Now the big bastard was on a crusade. A mission from God, is it? I squawked, and just managed to refrain from adding lunatic. Harry turned, first his head, then his formidable shoulders, and stared down at me like I was some kind of pus-oozing maggot he discovered, not just in his bed, but fucking his wife. Why did everybody hate me all of a sudden? Was I that fucking unlikable? Was I that bad? Ha-ha, but of course I was. I was a teacher. I was there to be abused and derided and shat upon. I was there to be fucked over. 
After all, just because hell had come to earth didn't mean the little guy would take it any different. No, said Harry. He turned back to the chaos. It's a mission of family. My wife and little girls are out there somewhere. I must find them. But there, I blurted, and Carlson gave me a kick on the ankle. It really hurt, and I glared at him, baring my teeth. Carlson gave a single twitch of the head. No. And I read beneath the surface text. No, don't say it, or he'll cut your throat. So cut my throat, is it? Of course. I was just there to propel the narrative, a secondary character in life. Lucky to get a speaking part. Damn them all. Ha ha. Well, yes, quite possibly. Harry took three steps forward and stopped as a subtle chthonic rumbling began beneath our feet. I felt the hackles rise on my neck. I could sense real energy crackling from the ground, from the bedrock, up, 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 through my battered scuff shoes, jiggling my arteries, zapping through my testicles, pounding through my heart, electrifying my brain so I couldn't think straight. Slowly, like the Titanic sinking in reverse, something massive began to rise from the tumultuous destruction of mud and rock and bricks and battered cars and broken people. It was huge, bigger than huge, a mammoth vertical wall of what appeared to be greased black iron. It rose only a few feet ahead of us, rolling slowly upward, as the ground shook and the rumbling increased in staggered staccato steps. It grew and rose and rose, and I thought of Pink Floyd and began to giggle. It wasn't just a wall, it was a fucking fortress. Steam ejaculated from force vents in the ground, streaming all around us. Sally ran to Harry. He stroked her hair and tried to disguise his lust. Carlson was looking nervous, twitchy, his eyes darting around for some place to hide. If ever I'd seen one, here was a man not to watch your back in a pub fight. Screaming, the wall slammed upward until it was twenty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred feet high, and as suddenly as it started, it was done, and the earth stabilized, and I stared up at the black, greasy iron barrier before me. The silence was an oral anticlimax. I shuddered. I looked around. I reached forward, touched the iron, and it was cold. Colder than the grave. Colder than a corpse. Colder than ice. I pulled my hand away and left a strip of skin from my finger on its surface. Blood ran down my stripped flesh, dripped into the earth in degraded bricks. I sucked my finger. The bugger! Is it hot? said Harry, coming close. No, freezing cold. Come on, we'll try to find an entrance. To, to whatever's inside. There must be new rulers. Somebody in charge. We are dealing with supernatural entities here, my friend. Harry's eyes were gleaming. He had the air of somebody on a pilgrimage. It was incredible how quickly he had adapted to this new world. I followed, loitering at the back like the fat kid in gym class. We worked our way along the mammoth wall as the sun rose, casting a dull winter glow which gleamed across the oily black wall and shattered earth. I watched Sally and Harry flirting. So much for Harry finding his wife and kids, eh? True love never dies. And I watched Carlson scanning every corpse we came to. At one broken body, he furtively dropped to his knees and rifled through the man's pockets, pulling out a gold watch and wallet. He took the money and dropped the empty leather to the barren ground, then gave me a look that chilled my heart. Yeah, he said. What comes next is gold fillings? You don't know what we're walking into, snapped Carlson. Gold and money could buy our way out of a lot of trouble. I started laughing, and Carlson's glare grew, if possible, more evil. Be careful, teacher boy, I'll shiv you. I held up my hands. Apologies. Tell me, Carlson, what will you spend the money on? The shops are gone, the supermarkets are rubble, Argus is dust, McDonald's is pulp, just like its burgers. You just watch, he said, eyes darting around. You just wait. I shrugged and followed Harry and Sally. Had it really come to this, spending the end of days with the plastic party, 
real on the outside, but fake, oh so fake on the in. I shuddered. I thought things couldn't get much worse, but I'd been wrong. And the irony? The irony was, it would go downhill from here. We stood before iron gates. They were intricately detailed, and peering between wrist-thick bars we could just make out a distant castle of some kind, blood-red and gleaming. Woven into the steel was a word, pandemonion. The letters swam before my eyes. I knew it. I understood. Pandemonion from Milton. All demon place. A place full of demons. Shit. I looked up at the sky. The sun hadn't moved. It hung on the horizon like a bloated leech gorged on joy and hope. Hello! boomed Harry, shouting between the bars. Is there anybody in there? We've come to join you, to swear allegiance to this new ruling power. I watched Harry with growing unease. Join you? A new ruling power? I didn't remember agreeing to that. And joking aside, what if this was hell? Wasn't hell full of demons? Who was Harry agreeing to join? Would he sell his soul to the devil? Sacrifice his firstborn? I shivered and swallowed. My throat was dry and my nerves were shot. I realised this was a BFG, a bad fucking gig. This is not somewhere I wanted to be. But then, did I really have a choice? Apparently not. Slowly, the gates creaked open. Harry puffed out his chest, fists clenching as if he had achieved something heroic. Sally had both hands clasped on one of his huge biceps. Carlson was sniffing around behind them like stray dog after scraps. Here they come, said Harry. He took a deep breath and marched between the towering gates and onto a path of... Shit. I danced for a moment as I realised the road was formed from large chunks of crushed skulls, shattered sections of eye sockets and cheekbones and broken teeth. So then... We weren't about to meet any angels, well, not nice ones anyway. Our boots and shoes and bare feet crackled as we walked. Sally didn't seem to notice. She toyed absently with her hair with one hand as she followed Harry. She had total faith in him, but then he was the alpha male and oozed confidence like an infected wound oozes pus. Again I was at the back. I figured it was the best place to be in case I needed to run. And so it was I who noticed the gates closing again, ponderously, propelled by some invisible force. Great. Harry strode like a man has never stridden before, but even his steps faltered as three figures emerged from the castle, trotting towards us on glistening horses down the road of crushed skulls. The three figures drew closer, and the closer they came, the more we saw, the slower Harry's walk became. Until he stopped, he stared. Hell, we all stared. They rode horses that had been peeled. Well, that's how it looked. They had no skin, only bare, gleaming muscles, oiled with blood. Their eyes were rolling and crazy, and I suppose it was a testament to the rider's strength that the horses snorting a foam of blood didn't bolt. But then, there was no question of their strength. They were huge, bulky, wearing old leather and fur. I don't know whether they were man or beast, but their skin was a deep mottled red, run through with veins black like solidifying lava. The eyes had no colour, but were portals into oblivion and from necks and shoulders and arms and heads projected all manner of curved blades and fangs, curved protrusions and bone horns. They were riddled with spikes like hellish porcupines, and they smiled as they reined in their horrific mounts and glared down at us, black saliva drooling from mottled lips. Their stench was the stink of rotting meat, of dead dogs and bloated corpses, of maggots feasting in unholy flesh, of decay and poison and plague. I say we run, I muttered. But Harry was entranced. I half turned, for I was damned if I was going to stay and be eaten. But Carlson had moved behind me, and he pushed a knife against the base of my spine. Run and you die. 
he snarled into my ear. Harry's the boss now. Harry will sort this out. You see if you don't. And we'll all be loyal subjects, right? Great. Held hostage by a ferret. Lords! Harry boomed, holding up his arms. We should be sprinting away now, running as fast as humanly possible. This shit could only end one way. I tried to sidle sideways, but Carlson shifted with me, putting more pressure on the knife. The bastard. What is your name? rumbled the lead rider, spittle flecking his lips. He was laughing. We were insects to him, funny little bugs. He was greatly amused. I'm Harry, master. We've come to serve you. We embrace this new regime. You do, Harry. Why is that? It's the beginning of a brave new world. It certainly is, said the huge rider, shifting his bulk a little in the saddle, which creaked in response. His forearm muscles bulged as he held the horse tight, and the black bone spikes emerging from his flesh gleamed under the dull red sun. His eyes swept across us, analyzing us, gauging our worth. There are four of you. We need a messenger, yet we need only one. What shall we do? His companions were now also laughing. Sally started to whimper. She clung to Harry, her nails digging into his arms, and slowly he turned and pried her fingers away one by one. She looked aghast at him. He ignored her pleading, pretty, tear-filled eyes, and turned back to the three riders. She came at him, but he pushed her away. I'm your man, said Harry. Prove it, said the lead rider, and in a swift motion he drew a huge sword. It was ancient beyond belief, the blade a dull black and intricately carved, a thousand tiny rubies glistened in the pommel. The rider leaned forward with a creak of leather, proffering the hilt. Nervously licking his lips, Harry took the sword. "'Kill the others,' said the rider. Harry turned and stared at us. His eyes were gleaming. I would have stepped back, but for the knife in my spine. Sally pulled away from him. "'No, Harry,' she cried. "'No! What about the things you told me, walking here? All those promises of our new life together, our new world? You said you would protect me.' "'That I did,' said Harry. He stepped forward, lifting the huge black sword. My eyes lifted with it, watching him hold it above Sally. She crumpled into a fetal lump, whimpering and begging, snot dripping down her lips. For a moment I thought he would do it. For a moment I thought he would strike her down. But he did not. Harry lowered the sword and turned back to the riders. This is a test, he said. Indeed it is, said the bulky rider. But now he and his companions were not laughing. Their spikes rippled along muscular backs. Their horses snorted and stamped and the empty black eyes drilled into Harry. Suddenly I surged forward and grabbed the sword from Harry's fingers. He resisted, but I had taken him by surprise. I slapped him away and lifted the sword, staring at the blade in wonder. A feeling drove through me like a spike of steel hammered through soft wood. I turned and hacked the sword through Sally's head. Her skull split like soft fruit, and her brain and skull shards all tangled with hair fell apart. Bone and blood and brain matter puddled over the skull road. I lifted the blood-stained sword. A cool wind whispered through my mind. I understood. I comprehended the situation. This was just like teaching little bastards. You had to show strength, project power, and never, ever give in. You bastard, growled Harry. You stupid, stupid bastard. This is a test to make sure we do the right thing. You're wrong, I said, and swung the sword. It hit his neck with a dull thud, and for a moment I thought it was too blunt to cut through his flesh. Then his eyes widened, a whoosh of air blasted from his mouth, and the blade eased through skin and fat and muscle and spine. His head fell sideways and plopped to the road. Without looking at the riders, I turned on Carlson. 
He was backing away from me, his eyes darting about like the balls in a pinball machine. I strode toward him, and he held up his only defense, his homemade knife, his shiv. My blade sank through the air and his fingers pattered to the ground. Carlson screamed and turned and ran. I considered running after him, but decided it would be undignified. I would catch him later. I turned back, and holding the sword vertically point down, I knelt and bowed my head. For a long moment there was silence. Then laughter rolled out, rich and resonant and musical. I risked a glance upward and saw all three riders beaming down at me, black saliva dripping from jagged teeth. What's your name, little man? Tom, I said. And there was no fear now. There was no hate and no sadness, no empathy, no sorrow, no remorse, no humanity. Why did you do it, Tom? I smiled. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, I said. And you want to reign with us, boy, said the lead rider. I stood and hefted the sword thoughtfully. I do, I said. He's got balls, said the second rider, and all three chuckled. I like you, Tom, growled the first. I gave a nod of thanks and understanding. Finally, I understood. I understood how the world worked. Well, this world, anyway. Finally, I had a system I could work with. The rider reached out a talon hand to me. I took it, and he hauled me onto the back of his horse. You're going to go a long way, Tom, he said. That was Andy Remick's Pandemonian, as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan, and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as rigger, greensmen, propsmen, and stunt coordinators. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything. But he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Thank you, Jedediah. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show is produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.